Thanks, Adam. G'day. How are we? Oh, this is going to keep the servants. Fan's going to blow it over. Um, so, as Adam said before, uh, we're finishing up our time in Mark today. It's been good, hasn't it? Uh, we're going to come back next uh, year, term four. We're going to pick it up from where we finished uh, today. And we're going to finish off the rest of Mark. Uh, but something that I've really admired about Jesus is as we've been uh, reading through the Gospel of Mark, uh, is seeing the way that Jesus doesn't shy away from the truth. We still see the the soft, compassionate, tender Jesus that we often think of, but we also see the fiery, confronting side of him, the the one that's not afraid uh, for a bit of conflict. Um, No matter who he's speaking to, he gives the truth straight up. He doesn't sugarcoat it. And I admire that because we're not left wondering as readers where we stand with Jesus. I might actually get this further away so it doesn't affect the sound. One sec. Great. Uh, Yeah, so this happens for us today as we hear the words that Jesus speaks to us. Uh, He tells us the cold, hard reality of what it's going to take to be a follower of him. And so look back at your Bible. Look at verse 34 again. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So notice who he's addressing here. He's not just addressing his posse of radical disciples. He calls the whole crowd to himself and says, whoever, whoever wants to follow me. So this is directed at everyone, which means Jesus is directing this to us. Uh, He's pretty explicit about it. The only path to follow him is this. There's not one calling for the radical Christian type and another for the regulars. Uh, This is his call to anyone that wants to follow him. And so as we sit here and we listen to what Jesus is calling us into, we're challenged today to weigh up what it's actually going to cost us, what it's going to cost us to follow him with our lives. And is it really worth it? In our home this week, uh, we had one of those weeks where everything just started to break. Uh, Bella and I, we've been married for seven years now, and all the things that we bought at the start of our marriage, when we got given as well, they're all breaking. It's just been one of those years. And this year, it was our dishwasher that went on us, Uh, and so I was out looking for a new dishwasher, and you know what it's like? Someone friendly comes up, and they want to kind of help you find a dishwasher to sell it. Uh, and I know nothing about dishwashers, but my question is usually this. Uh, what makes this $400 one worth $400, and why would I pay double the price, $800, for this? What's, what's the difference? And so this guy was telling me about all these fandangle new technologies that dishwashers can do, can connect to your phone, things like that. But at the end of the day, it's mainly just the materials. One's plastic, one's steel. And so uh, this, is, this is the question that we've got to consider when we're shopping for appliances. Is it worth paying double the cost? Is it really worth it? Uh, and even dishwashers say they'll charge you an extra 100 bucks just if it's black, so it matches your kitchen. 
We go through this process all the time. Uh, whether it's at the grocery store, you're, you're choosing between two brands, or if you're in bed and you're wondering, uh, you're thinking about getting up and going for some exercise, the question's this, is it really worth what it's going to cost me? And this is the question we're going to be asking today. Is it really worth what Jesus says it's going to cost us? This is what we need to weigh up. And if you're here and you're investigating the claims of Jesus and the Bible, you've got to hear this straight up. I hope that as you've been looking at the Bible, you've been able to hear that Jesus loves you, that he offers a way for forgiveness of sins, uh, that if you put your trust in him, he'll wipe away your sin and welcome you into eternal life with him and his people forever. That he did this not because of anything we've done, but because of his good grace to us. I hope that's what you've been able to hear. But as in Jesus invites us to believe in this truth, he doesn't want us to be deceived about what it's going to cost. There's no extra hidden fees. He gives us the reality so we can make an informed decision. He doesn't want us to misunderstand what the Christian life really looks like. And so here he's lifting up the bonnet and he's showing us that if we want to follow him, it's going to cost us. It's going to mean that we're going to suffer because of it. And this is what Jesus' closest disciple, Peter, couldn't quite reconcile. Uh, if you were live with us last week, uh, we saw that Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And you can see that in your Bible, Mark 8.30. Uh, by calling Jesus the Messiah, he's declaring that Jesus is the promised Son of God that's come to save all of Israel. But if you look at the next verse down, verse 31, Jesus turns around and he starts to tell them that he needs to go suffer and die. And Peter, he can't reconcile that. He's thinking, why would the Messiah suffer? Shouldn't the arrival of God's King bring joy and happiness and prosperity for his people. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. He thinks he's crazy. And Peter's problem is he's only got half the truth right about Jesus. Peter is right in saying that Jesus is in the Messiah, but he's very wrong in the way that he expects the Messiah's kingdom to come. And this was similar for Jewish people in the first century. They anticipated a Messiah to come as a conquering king, a king that was going to throw off the oppression of foreign kingdoms and restore Israel to a dominant power it once was under King David's rule, to restore it to its former glory. But now Jesus is telling them that he's going to suffer at the hands of the leaders of Israel and die. This news is shocking. Peter and I assume the disciples, they're rattled by it. Jesus doesn't fit their messianic stereotype. And so this is the twist that nobody saw coming. Uh, and I, I want to argue that they could or should have seen this coming. I love a good whodunit movie. Anyone else kind of love these movies? No? no? Oh, yeah, two. Yeah, good. Um, your classic murder mystery, whether it's a book or a film... I love the way that these movies invite you to go on this search of truth with them. And I think one thing that makes for a really good whodunit movie is when they play fair. And what I mean by play fair is that a bad whodunit movie uh, will, will reveal the twist at the end 
uh, but they never gave you the clues to work it out. It was just this like hidden secret knowledge, and you're like, oh, how could I work that out? But a good whodunit movie, uh, it'll give you the clues, and if you really pay attention and think deeply, you can, you can figure it out for yourself. I don't know if you've ever re-watched a good whodunit movie, but it's usually really obvious to you when you watch it back through, you can see all those little clues along the way. The Bible, this ancient historical account, actually functions in a similar way. In the Old Testament, we see prophets who speak on behalf of God and reveal what God is going to do in the future. And so this is why Israel were anticipating the Messiah. It's because God said that he would send a king to establish a kingdom that would last forever. And this is the pattern of how God works through the Bible. He, he says he's going to do something. He invites his people to trust in his promise. And then he does it and proves that he's trustworthy and that he is God. But there's one prophecy that the disciples weren't considering as they looked for the Messiah. Someone the prophet Isaiah calls the servant of God. He's a bit of a mysterious character that pops up in chapters 49 to 55. And I actually want to help you, us all see this for ourselves. And so, with your Bible, put your finger in Mark 8 and come with me to Isaiah chapter 49. It's going to be halfway through the Old Testament. And I'll give you a bit of context as you find it. The first half of the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah prophesies about the judgment that's going to come on Israel. They're going to be exiled by Babylon. But in the second half, you see this tone change, and he starts to provide Israel hope after the exile. Uh, There's going to be a saviour, a way that God will redeem his people. And this is where we start to see this servant character. And so looking at uh, Isaiah 49, verse 5, read it with me. We actually get a, a description of what the servant's role was. And now the Lord says... He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. And so the servant is the one that's going to bring Israel back to God. He would restore the relationship to God like it was under the rule of King David. And that sounds a bit like what they were hoping for in the Messiah, doesn't it? A bit of a clue for us. There's a bit more to the servant's role. Look at verse 6. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so God is saying to the servant, just restoring Israel to me, it's too small a thing. What you're going to do is be a light to the Gentiles, the whole world. To, to offer salvation to everyone. And so the servant's role was not only to redeem Israel, but the whole world. But the way that the servant achieves this is not how we might expect. And so flick a few pages to your right, Isaiah 52, look for verse 13. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. And so the servant character is going to act wisely. He's going to be exalted and lifted up. 
and people will be appalled at him. He will be disfigured beyond recognition. And if you go down uh, to the next chapter, chapter 53, verse 4, we find out why. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The servant of God is going to suffer, not because of anything he has done wrong, but for someone else. He does it for other people's transgressions, for their iniquities, their sin. And the punishment that he receives brings other people peace with God. By his wounds, we become healed. This is the way that the servant is going to redeem Israel and be a light to the whole world. And keep looking, last verse here, look at verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And so the, suffer, the suffering servant will see the light of life, he'll live again, and he'll justify many and be satisfied. And so flick back to Mark 8. And, and when Jesus, here in Mark 8, tells his disciples, verse 31, that he must suffer many things, die and rise again, he's identifying himself with the suffering servant. And the rest of Mark's gospel that we'll see next year shows this to be true. Jesus suffers greatly at the hands of his own people. He's crucified on a cross under Roman rule. He's marred beyond recognition. And in his death, he pays the punishment that humanity deserves. He takes our sin away and offers us peace with God. And this is what Peter hasn't understood yet. The prophecies about the Messiah and the suffering servant, they're talking about the same person. Jesus has come to establish an everlasting kingdom as the Messiah, but the way that he brings about his kingdom is through the path of suffering. Because Peter only had half the truth right about Jesus, he assumed that life was about to get really good for him. He was best friends with the Messiah. But Peter's wrong view of Jesus means a wrong view of following him. And so Jesus is clear about what it takes to be a follower of the suffering servant. It means, for us, taking the path of suffering as well. All those that want to follow him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And so this is what I want to clarify with our time together. What what, what does it mean to deny yourself? What does it mean for us to take up our cross? And really, is it worth what it's going to cost us? And so let's think about self-denial. I think it's Jesus' self-denial which is at the heart of why Peter's so shocked here. Like, why would the Messiah deny what's rightfully his? And I think self-denial is equally shocking in our day and age as well. People in our world, we're happy to uh, give up things, but it's usually so that we can get something in return. It's, it's not true self-denial. The, the mantra of our world is the opposite. It's actually self-fulfillment. 
Everything about our world screams, seek your best life now. Do whatever you can to make yourself happy. And we get fed this self-fulfillment narrative all the time, don't we? You turn on the telly, it's ads telling you how you can find the fulfillment you're not, you haven't got so far. You look at social media, it's people framing up their lives, making it look like they're living the fulfilling life. You, you chat to your colleagues at work and, and come Friday, it's, it's what are you doing on the weekend or, or this time of year, it's where, where are you going on holidays? People want to know that you're chasing the same self-fulfilling life that they are. If you're in school or university, this is the message we're getting. You need to find a career that makes you happy. You need to make a name for yourself. Love is love. Find your authentic self. Be whoever you want to be. According to the wisdom of our world, this is what life is about. It tells us to chase fulfilment, whatever it costs us. And so if, if something we're doing isn't bringing us joy, then bail. Abandon ship. Whether it's your job, your husband, your wife, your family, your friends, find a way to get rid of it. If you want something you don't have, give up what you've got until you can get it. If you're missing out, do whatever you can so you're not. Earn more money, travel the world, seek more experiences. This is the kind of wisdom you'll find from our world. And to deny someone their attempts at self-fulfillment seems crazy, doesn't it? No one in our lives are going to challenge that notion. No one will. No one except Jesus. Jesus is explicit that self-denial, not self-fulfillment, is the path to life. Look there at verse 35 in Mark 8. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus offers us hope amongst our world's failing self-fulfillment story. That it's through self-denial that we actually find life. The word that Jesus uses uh, for life here, it's not, it isn't referring to a sense of existence, but it's actually referring to a sense of self. It's, saying, it's as if it's saying, if you insist on living for yourself and re refuse to let yourself go, you'll end up losing yourself. But if we truly surrender our desires to Jesus and give away ourselves to others in love, then we'll actually find our true selves. And we'll find freedom. So can you see the irony in this? As our world seeks to discover its authentic self-fulfilled life, it finds the opposite. It loses life. But in self-denial, we find the purpose that we were made for, to be servants of Jesus. Not a purpose that we find by looking within ourselves, but a purpose given to us by the one who made us. We become servants of this very servant himself. And so can you see the freedom in this? We don't need to pursue a self-fulfilling life. If we miss out on what we want now, we are still okay. The rewards of life will continue for us eternally. We can endure hardship today because there's a time where hardship will end forever. 
And self-denial, it unleashes us for gospel ministry. We have freedom to give ourselves to others because we're not trying to find anything for ourselves in it. We don't need to find fulfillment in what we're doing. We don't actually even need to enjoy what we're doing. Jesus is preparing us that serving him is going to be hard. It's going to cost us, and we're going to face hardship and difficulty because of that. And so if you're finding your efforts for gospel work no longer, hard, no longer satisfying or hard, we don't need to throw in the towel. This life, it's not about us. And this mindset, it, it radically changes who we are as people in this world, as, as workers, as friends, as husbands, as wives, as parents. As workers, we don't need a job that fulfills us. That's a, that's a bit of a first world luxury, isn't it? Our jobs can suck, and that's okay because we're not chasing fulfillment from it. You don't have to bail and move on because it's no longer giving you the joy it once did. As friends, we can have relationships that aren't all about us. Friendship no longer becomes what a friend can do for us, but what we can be for our friends. As husbands and wives, we go through seasons when the person that we're in a relationship with isn't fulfilling us. It isn't giving us what we hope for. But that's okay. We can stick it out. Real love is self-denial. This changes who we are as parents. Our parenting is really hard. I reckon it's the closest thing that comes to forced self-denial. But we can endure hardship as parents because its purpose isn't to help us find fulfillment. Here's the reality of the wisdom of the self-fulfillment narrative of the world, it's that it's a lie. It may appear to be working out for the ones that have the finances and the influence to make it happen, but it won't last forever. Eventually, there'll be a conclusion, death. The, the, the irony of what Jesus is saying is that those that attempt to chase life now will actually find death. This is what Jesus is warning us about in verse 36. Have a look there. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so when Jesus talks about our soul, he's getting at the peace of our being, our existence, that exists beyond the physical nature. He's saying that that's the most important thing that you have. Without it, you have nothing. Don't trade it for anything. Chasing self-fulfillment in this world now, it will rob you of your soul. It will lose the very thing that we're chasing after. To follow Jesus means a radical flip on the way that you think about life. In self-denial, we follow the path of the suffering servant because we know that this life isn't the end. That's good, isn't it? Uh, let's have a look at this second part of what Jesus says here, that we need to take up our cross. And so in our modern uh, culture, in light of what Jesus has done for us, we romanticise the symbol of the cross, don't we? Uh, we make jewellery of it, we get it tattooed on ourselves. We can even use this phrase, taking up your cross, uh, as an expression uh, to describe something that requires a bit of effort or hardship. But in first century Israel, the cross was a symbol of Roman oppression. 
The cross was a torture device invented by the Roman army as an instrument of cruelty. When people looked at the cross and they saw this symbol, they were reminded again of the consequences of standing against the Roman Empire. And so the symbol of the cross to these people, it would invoke disgust, hatred, and even fear. It was the most visible symbol of Rome's oppressive cruelty over them. And so when Jesus tells us to take up our cross, he's not saying that we need to go and die on a cross like he did. He achieved different things through the cross. But he is saying that if that's what it takes to stand with Jesus, then yes, we need to be prepared to suffer the same outcome as him. And Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said this. Of the 12 disciples, 11 were killed for standing with Jesus. They were crucified, clubbed, stoned, burnt, sawn in two. And this was a reality for the first century readers of Mark's gospel. They were still living under the Roman rule of Emperor Nero, who's famous for crucifying many Christians. Jesus is giving us a realistic expectation of what it could cost us to stand with him. But there's some comfort in this as well. Jesus wants his followers to know that even when they suffer, even when they hung there on a cross like him, it wasn't a sign that God had abandoned them, but he identified with them that they were disciples of him. The suffering servant calls his followers to suffer with him. But I feel that as 21st century Australians, this reality can seem a bit distant to us. We don't live under the same threat of the cross. And so what does it look like for us to take up our cross as well? Well, we've got to recognise that not all suffering is take up your cross suffering. Uh, many, many of our sufferings are unavoidable parts of, of the human experience. Things like sickness, death, hardships, toil in work. Everyone in this world is experiencing, to some degree, unavoidable suffering. Uh, and some of these sufferings are explainable through, um, you know, Genesis 3, the reality of living in a sinful, broken world, uh, that we can't escape these sufferings no matter who we are. But, the, but when Jesus calls us to take up our cross, he's actually calling us to a different type of suffering. He's calling us to embrace suffering for the sake of him and his gospel. This is the kind of suffering that takes place as a direct result of standing with Jesus and being obedient to his mission. He doesn't call us to suffer for suffering's sake, but he calls us to take the harder road if it means standing with him. And this is what he's getting at in verse 38. Have a look there. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And so Jesus, he wants our faith to be public. He doesn't want us to keep our faith private. That's to be ashamed of him. He wants public loyalty to him and his people, even if it invites suffering on us. And so even though we don't live with this same threat of crucifixion, 
I can assure you the more that you publicly align yourself with Jesus, the more that you're going to invite this kind of suffering into your life. And so here's some questions to consider. Do the people that you work with or study with, do they know that you're a Christian? Do your family, do your friends, do they know that you're a Christian? Do they know the hope that you have in Jesus? When you experience Christians getting ridiculed, whether it's in the break room at work or wherever it might be, do you, are you quick to identify with those people, with his people? Have you ever attempted to distinguish yourself from those types of Christians? Anticipate that public loyalty to Jesus is going to invite suffering. It's going to make your workplace uncomfortable. It's going to fracture relationships. It's going to put you at a disadvantage in life. And as hard as it is to imagine, it may even lead to you getting killed. We don't know what God has in store for Australia for the next 100 years. And so how far are you willing to go to stand with Jesus? Many Christians have paid this cost. Uh, one who's a bit of a personal hero of mine, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard of him. He was a German uh, pastor and kind of spy in World War II. I'll get to that. Uh, he was pretty instrumental in unifying uh, the church against Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, and it's one, one self-denying decision that he made that kind of really sticks out to me and, and inspires me. Uh, Bonhoeffer, he found himself being persuaded by the church in Germany to leave Germany and escape to America. Uh, because if he stayed in Germany, he was going to get called up uh, to fight, which he would have said no, uh, which could have been a capital punishment for him. But once Bonhoeffer arrived in America, he changed his mind. He was convinced that if, that if he was going to play any part in rebuilding the Christian life after the war, he had to go through the same sufferings that his brothers and sisters were going through back in Germany. And so he returned to Germany uh, to stand with Christ, to stand with his people, whatever it might cost him. And so he comes back, he, he does a lot of things, he starts this like underground church movement, he gets involved working in this German resistance operation, and eventually, uh, because of his efforts against Hitler, uh, he gets arrested, he gets put in a prison camp, and with time, he gets sentenced to death. And on the day of his execution, before he was led away, he asked his fellow Christian prisoner uh, to pass on a message to his brothers and sisters back at his church. And this was his message. Um, Jesse, I think I've got a slide for this one. He said this, This is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer got what it means to deny yourself, to take up your cross. A doctor who worked in the prison camp wasn't a Christian, but he wrote this about what he saw in Bonhoeffer's execution. Uh, another slide, Jesse. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God would have heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensured after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, 
I've hardly seen a man die entirely submissive to the will of God. Two weeks later, Allied forces stormed the prison camp. A week after that, the war is over. And somewhat prophetically, Bonhoeffer once wrote in one of his books, I've got another slide, Jess, he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bid him come and die. This is the cost that we've got to be willing to pay if we're going to stand with Jesus. To die to yourself, to go the path of the suffering servant, even if it costs you your life. And so, is it worth it? Is it really worth what it's going to cost you? The truth is that many will answer that question with a no. The lie of the self-fulfillment life, it's too hard to say no to. But for those that answer yes, Jesus will say this to you, those that lose their life for me and my gospel will save it. Jesus wants us to see that it's so worth it. It's eternally worth it. And so I'm going to pray to him and finish here uh, and, and, and we'll bring these things to him. Uh, Heavenly Father, yeah, as we consider the cost of being a follower of you, Lord, uh, we ask that you give us courage. We ask that you give us boldness. Uh, that We ask for your help by your spirit. Uh, to stand with you, Lord. Uh, we know our own hearts. We know the deceptiveness of getting caught up with the self-fulfillment narrative of this world, Lord, and we know that we too go along with it, uh, but we need your help. Uh, please help us to say no to ourselves. Please help us to put you first. Please help us to be a servant as you served us, Lord. Uh, and, and, if, and if it's death that you have in store for us, Lord, uh, help us to go uh, willing to submit to your will. Uh, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.